Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of Australian Politics Live. For 2019, we survived. Just we? <laughs> <laughs> limping, limping well, to the finish line. Well, you can hear the teams all here. So, uh, <laughs> so I think objectively, factually, we did survive. Here we are. Uh, it's Catherine Murphy, host of the show, and I'm with my lovely peeps, my lovely Canberra peeps. Amy Ramikis is sitting next to me, live blogger extraordinaire and all round reanimated corpse <laughs> of Amy Ramikis. <laughs> she exaggerates. Sarah Martin is sitting across from me. Chief political correspondent and all-round fabulous woman as well. Limping to the finish line. Limping to the finish line. And poor Carp for a bit of spice. Surviving but not thriving. Bit of, <laughs> <laughs> bit of law, bit of insight. The anyway, what we're going to do in this episode is, is probably a little bit obvious, but we feel as though we need to do this either for therapeutic or post-traumatic stress reasons. We are going to replay what happened in this political year and then we are going to think about the the year that is likely to come. So it sort of makes sense to me, I think, to start just in the what feels like the sort of prehistory, prehistoric period now, which is year zero. Year zero, uh, which is before the federal election. So let's envisage ourselves coming back to work at the start of the year. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull's no longer the prime minister. Scott Morrison is the prime minister. What happened in that period, Amy? Paul? Paul's No, Paul's fired up. Scott, Paul, yeah. Scott Morrison hit the big reset button and the way he did it was to come back and say that oh, I was on away on holidays in summer at the Shoalhaven Head Hotel. Oh, God, I forgot and whenever, the hotel. And whenever, whenever he didn't want to answer a question... The Canberra bubble was the excuse, you know, uh, this this question about leadership and why I'm Prime Minister and not Malcolm Turnbull, that was a Canberra bubble question. And the way we knew it was a Canberra bubble question was because no one in the Shoalhaven Head Hotel was talking about it. Weren't they the original Quiet Australians? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Quiet were, they the first, were, they, were they the first Quiet Australians? I think they were. I think they were. And this... Mm-hmm. This let him hit the big reset button so we could forget that they voted against a banking royal commission, forget that they wanted to give a tax cut to big business because it was it was going to be all new going into the election. Yeah, and and so and did we did strawberries happen this year? Yes. Did we spring out with strawberries? That was the first piece of legislation Scott Morrison owned, remember? It was passed in about 24 hours in the parliament. If you've forgotten this, this was a, a crackdown against people who were tampering with strawberries. People were going into Woolworths putting 
Pins allegedly, or, came, allegedly came sorry. back to be yes. in the supply tr- chain. It was one disgruntled worker who's been uh, charged with having done Sarah, this. So Sarah. Paul and I are talking over here because we think that was last I think that year. was September. I think that We're was like the first, <laughs> month. I think that was the first <laughs> month or two in, We're just in the job. Our yeah, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> We're otherwise reliable <laughs> apart from this story. <laughs> Strawberries was the big story of, you know, 2018. Well, let's be honest. <laughs> well, that, well, that was probably the only story after the leadership. But it's sort of like I'm, I'm raising that to illustrate the pivot point, right, mm. that Scott Morrison was not going to be the Scott Morrison of the past. Scott Morrison was going to be the uh, take action, be practical, crack crack on Prime Minister. That was sort of set up early in the year with the Quiet Australians. I've, that, that is brilliant that you remember The, the Quiet hotel. Australians and also it was the, the Muppet show is over. This is back, back to work and, you know, all, all eyes on the election. But it was very much trying to, you know, rid people's uh, you know, view of the Liberal Party being a, a, a hot mess. A shambles. Mm. A complete it, it shambles. Was, it was the first part of the dodgy dad persona as well. The baseball caps came out very, mm. very early with mm. Scott Morrison yeah. after his Shoalwater holiday where he spoke to the original Quiet Australians. Right. And so, I think that I, I think that the expectation that Labor would win also helped that that reset button be pushed. You had people uh, like Greens leader Richard Di Natale saying that Bill Shorten will be Prime Minister and it's, you know, the next election is about the makeup of the Senate. And so that expectation that we were automatically headed towards change meant that there was less less scrutiny on on Scott and and on you know. Parliament also and, didn't sit. Yes. We didn't have Parliament yeah. for a really long time at the beginning of the year because they just wanted to stay quiet. So they didn't want the focus to be on Canberra. They wanted the focus to be on anything but. Mm. And I think there was a very noticeable shift that Scott Morrison made the choice between him and Bill Short and he didn't want people talking about the Liberal Party. Yep. He didn't want people talking about the government's record. He wanted people to be looking at the choice between it's either Scott Morrison or Bill Short and he said as much and said that all the way to the election. Yeah. And so, okay, so then we roll into the budget, which was the sort of kickoff point for the election. And a lot of the the government's messaging was sort of coalescing at that point. Again, we we collectively applied a significant discount factor to to that messaging because we I think, you know, much of the apparatus of politics, including us watching, were locked and loaded for a change of government or or sorry, not locked and loaded because we weren't actually, but we were anticipating the likelihood of a change of government. But then the budget proved to be quite important for the government in terms of framing the election contest to follow, right, because that sort of set up the economic argument that that the coalition won during the election. So let's go to the election. So what are, what are, what are your memories of that, like just sitting trauma. here off the top? Well, trauma, sure, but like <laughs> specifically what, what sticks out, you know, we're now more than six months after the fact, what sticks out? Uh, Scott Morrison not really answering any questions and just devoting everything to Labor. It, there wasn't any policies that were announced by the government during the election. You can't think of any marquee policies that they really stood up on and said, this is what they stand for. They stood for not being Labor and Scott Morrison stood for not being Bill Shorten. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much the That's entire campaign. memory. What about you, Sarah? What I think, sticks out? Well, I mean, there's sort of campaign moments that stick out. And I think, um, you know, as Amy has referenced, it was, you know, the pressure being on Labor and Bill Shorten had a very bad first week and took a while to find his feet in the campaign. And I think it was fair. Fa- fa- 
fairly obvious early on that Scott Morrison was a very different campaigner to Malcolm Turnbull and he was campaigning very hard, very negative. It was it was a fundamentally different beast to what we saw in 2016 under Malcolm Turnbull. Mm-hmm. And Paul? I remember about a fortnight in watching Bill Shorten give quite a technical explanation about why Labor was saying that the coalition had cut billions from health. And he got there in the end and it was technically correct, but it, it took him, you know, a whole minute or two to explain this. And then at Scott Morrison's press conference the same day, he was asked, are you going to match, you know, hundreds of millions that Labor is giving uh, for cancer or pathology? And the first words out of his mouth were Bill Shorten lies. So in three words, uh, he was able to eliminate all the benefit that Labor hoped to get from that policy that day, uh, whereas, you know, Bill Shorten had taken paragraphs and paragraphs to try and build this case that the coalition had cut from health. And then if if you, if you believe the three words, they, they could absolutely win. Mm, yeah. mm. So it's kind of emblematic of the campaign that little example. Oh, that... It, that could have been any. That could have been any day. That wasn't a standout day. That was that was what almost every day was like. What have What have we learned from that experience? Like, I mean, I'm I can express mine very simply, and it's this: uh, don't make any assumptions, and if it doesn't feel right, it isn't right. Mm. Because the the issue I struggled with all election was it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like what the polls were saying. Anywhere that we went on the ground, it didn't feel like that. Uh, the rhythm of the campaign didn't feel like that. But it, that's really difficult to punch through when you when you, you look for evidence, right, you look for evidence points and you, and you think, well, God, there's a three-year poll trend that says Labor is going to win this election. Yes, Morrison objectively is campaigning better than Bill Shorten in this campaign, but the polls are still saying that Australians are ready for a change of government. It didn't feel right and it wasn't right and I shouldn't have looked for a false evidence point that in fact didn't exist, Amy. Mm. Well, I mean, you did say that all campaign and you were quite measured in reminding all of us of that, especially after we went to Queensland, that trip we took to Mm. Queensland and we couldn't find a single person who liked Bill Shorten, even among Labor supporters. And I think that's probably the lesson that I took from the campaign is more than any other election that I've covered is that don't discount a leader's popularity or unpopularity mm. because it can be enough to sway votes. And as we saw it, it was. Mm. Mm. Sarah? Well, like you, I used I, I used to have a little fortune cookie, uh, <laughs> whatever they're called, message in my wallet, which just said, trust your intuition. Mm. And it's something I've always tried to do as a journalist. I think it's really important. But I'd, I also think one of the big lessons is obviously take the polls with a massive handful of salt, but listen to what MPs are telling you on both sides and I think when you when you drilled into it and when you asked MPs well which seats you know which seats is Labor going to win which which seats in Queensland are you going to win which seats in WA are you going to win it didn't add up mm. so so it, it as you say things didn't match what what you were hearing and what you were seeing didn't match what the polls were saying and so therefore you know I think we all have to trust those sort of first principles of journalism more than perhaps we did because of the over-reliance on polls. Yeah, yeah. Paul? 
Um, my my uh, lesson was just that the yardstick has to be what's sinking in, because Labor was making announcement after announcement of you know of high spending policies. But going to Gilmore, which ironically was one of the few seats that Labor picked up from the coalition, I could tell that they were doing well with the attack on the Liberal candidate in that seat, but no one had heard of any of the things that they were spending money on. So if they're not talking about it at barbecues, if they're not talking about it at the sidelines of their kids' soccer matches, it doesn't matter that it it leads the nightly news for one night. If it's not sinking in, you don't win votes off it. And I think some of the most interesting stuff that we read throughout the election campaign was was not the... not the, the polls, but it was the, the qualitative stuff, like the focus yeah. groups yeah. that I think the Financial Review did a really good one and um, Michelle Grattan at The Conversation had a really interesting one as well. And I think that get, get, perhaps those types of analysis and survey is going to be more important given the way that polls are becoming more and more difficult mm. to, to get mm. accurate It's really results. personal now, but I mean, like, just to pick up on polls point. Like my sister was a childcare worker. Mm. Her entire Facebook feed is filled with people who work in childcare and not a single one of them had heard about Mm. Labor's pledge to raise the wages of childcare workers. Mm. Not a single one. Which is a massive failure. Yeah, it's Mm. sort of fascinating really. Mm. Um, And someone actually said to me during the campaign just on that point, you've prompted a memory, Amy, that um, uh, that they, a childcare worker said to them, this childcare worker had heard about the wage subsidy. It had penetrated. But uh, her response to it was not, oh, you beauty, that's fantastic. Her response was, how the hell, who's going to pay for that? And what are, what are the consequences of taxpayers subsidising that? Which, which floor, this was a Labor MP who told me this story. And it completely floored her. It was sort of like, really? (laughs) Like, you're the beneficiary, mate. Like, what do you care? Mm. But that was was the response. Mm. And, again, I mean, you know, it's not like in this conversation, I don't think our collective landing point is not sort of substitute one form of pseudoscience for another form of pseudoscience, right? Um, you know, we should get out of the, pr- the prediction business generally as mm. journos, right? We're not Nostradamus, we're, we're journalists. And the whole kind of predictive game is a mindset that's that's not beneficial to us collectively, right? But it's, yeah, I just can't, it's, it, it's that lesson that it just, if it feels, if it doesn't feel right, it mm. isn't right. But it, I think it also goes down to those campaign messages, both those examples and I spoke to a pensioner who was excited about the prospect of free dental, but she said, I, I, but I don't want to pay 50% tax. So you know, she was approaching retirement age. So it was, you know, the messaging that was cutting through from both sides. So some of the positives were getting through, yeah. but the negatives were obviously trumping those Outweighing positives, yeah. then on even the f- if they weren't you know, didn't apply in that case. But on the flip side of that, after the election, I went to a little town outside Harvey Bay where I heard a group of pensioners talking about how excited they were to get their franking credits. <laughs> Suddenly that they were going to be, at tax time, they were going to be getting all of these franking credits. And I asked them, well, do you have shares? And they said, oh, no, but with Morrison re-elected, we're going to get these franking credits. Oh, That's the message that they had picked up. Mm-hmm. Labor was going to tax them more, but they were going to get more money Someone from the Liberal getting, Party. Get a handout yeah. that, they, that they thought the Prime Minister would deliver. God, we should go back and see those pensions. Yeah, we should have. <laughs> ha- so how is your tax time? Yeah, but again, that 
came from Facebook for them. They hadn't actually read news from outlets that we would think about. It came from Facebook. That's a good thing. We should just linger here for a minute because I am, uh, well, you guys know, semi-obsessed now with Facebook and its role in democracy and its role in this campaign specifically. That's another I mean, learning, God, I hate that word, and it just came out of my mouth. But <laughs> just it, say lesson. Oh, lesson. Lesson. Thank lesson. Thank you, guys. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I apologise. You're buying, scrub, you're buying a round for that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I resign. Um, but that, that, uh, that whole gear shift, I mean, it's not like that happened in one election cycle, that now digital platforms and social media being where a lot of low information, disengaged voters get their information from. It's not like that just happened this year. That's been happening for ages. But that's another challenge associated with reporting elections and understanding what elections or what's actually going on in elections because Facebook doesn't make it easy for us to track that information flow. The the Australian election study, which the ANU runs after every election, actually showed this is the first election that people got the majority of their information or the the biggest source for their information was the internet, not TV news. And I I think in the 2016 election, uh, Labor had the the text messages about um, voting to save save Medicare and then there were some legal changes so that you couldn't impersonate a Commonwealth entity and everyone's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that was, Mm. yeah, fixed. Like that was a wicked trick. But you know, the, the, no, they're not going to be able to pull that lever. But then, the, the online tactics of um, you know death taxes, death taxes uh, that are being shared by personal message, Facebook messages, just spread out of out of control. A form of misinformation that can't be controlled. And and in the future, it's not only the the uh, spread of misinformation uh, through social platforms. It's also the deep the deep fake problem, mm. where it is so profoundly easy to fake a tweet or. Or digitally alter a video. We saw with Jeremy so, Corbyn. Yes, exactly, which is a fascinating example, a, a fake tweet, but has some sort of resonance because it could be true, all of a sudden enters an election conversation. Now, there'll be a bunch of low-information voters who saw that tweet, thought it, thought it was genuine, and have not engaged again, so don't understand subsequently, oh, actually, that he didn't say that, right? I think that has all kinds of implications for us, which kind of makes your head explode if you think about it. But also everyone has a curated feed, so we don't, we're don't. we getting completely different feeds to what other people are. We can be a beat behind where this information is coming from or how far it's spread because our feeds don't look like that. My feed is just filled with, you know, news and Kardashians and pretty things. Mm. So mm. It, it, took a, it took a couple of MPs starting to talk to me about the death tax thing taking off in, in social media. Then I then had to go hunt that out through other people's sort of feeds and just be like, actually, this is becoming a thing. And for me, that wasn't until the last week of the no, campaign. No, that's right. It was a bit of a slow boil. Like you certainly reported during the campaign on it, Paul, and so did others. And, and Nick Evershed, our colleague, was collecting, scraping and collecting a whole lot of information, which became very valuable to us post-election when we did a deep dive into this. But anyway, it's just, it's a thing I for the future. also um, worth mentioning while we're talking about Facebook and digital is um, just generally in the campaign, and this was picked up in Labor's review, the coalition had a very strong digital campaign. Yes. And this is sort of separate to the fake news problem. 
Labor was massively out campaigned on digital and a lot of Labor MPs at the time were saying, how is this happening? Our digital is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, they were aware that it was happening and the review confirmed that they really needed to improve how they um, operated in that space. Mm-hmm. So that's one to watch for future elections yeah, as well. And Absolutely. also Chinese sites as well, Chinese social media the WeChat. sites. Oh, yes, and WeChat, WeChat and, and that yeah, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. That's it's, something we're going to all have to get well, more of exactly, a handle on. Because it's yeah, so much information. And I think, is... I think the most popular um, Facebook video for the whole campaign, I'm sure I read this somewhere, was this 60-second video of Bill Shorten. It just said, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Shorten. And it just had him, you know, like eating that sausage sandwich in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And, and talking to Arnold talk- Schwarzenegger. Yeah, and it was, it was just, and it had, weird. you know, like... Look at this weirdo. Weird circus music. <laughs> and um, that was the most viewed election campaign ad on Facebook. Mm. Yeah, anyway, it's, it is... It's just to you know reassure listeners. It's this is something that this team is going to be thinking a lot about between now and the next election. How we come to terms with that, how we access that better. So we need to move past the election now, past the that uh, that <laughs> quite formative <laughs> that ten years of our yet. lives. <laughs> yes, that that small century that played out in <laughs> five weeks, uh, and think about the last six months of the year. Now I'll kick this off by saying, making an observation. I I myself do not think that. Uh, Scott Morrison, Prime Minister, uh, who who we who we see currently, the person who's been visible over the last several months, is the guy who won the election. Uh, I think the guy who won the election was deliberately uh, low key, practical, inoffensive, not ideological, um, empathetic, uh, crisp in terms of his communications, but but not political, really not political. Uh, I think the Prime Minister we've seen increasingly over the last several months has become much more obviously political in terms of his positioning. Um, you know, I sort of went with uh, with Morrison on that trip to the, the States and watched him watching Dor- Donald Trump and I think some of that he is importing his own version of that into the Australian political conversation. I think he's not Trump but he's he's flirting with some of those those elements of politics. What do we think about how how Morrison's travelling and whether or not voters notice, care, give a crap that, you know, that there might be a gap? And anyway, you might you you guys might disagree with me. You you guys might see a very consistent figure. Oh no, I think that, that Morrison has been really adept at being quite Teflon on a lot of issues. Nothing has touched him. He got through the leadership challenge okay. He got through the election okay. He's gotten through a, a lot of little small little flare-ups within the government just fine and he does it through just deflection. Canberra bubble problem, that's something that you guys are worried about, that quiet Australians aren't worried about it. I'm a man of action. I'm worried about what Australians are worried about. But suddenly we've reached a point where we've had a little grace period, not not that the press gallery or the media in general is giving it to him, but that the government has taken itself. They've taken some time to go, what on earth are we going to do having one government? We've come to the end of that. We've got the bushfire season. We have the drought. We have the economy that is not doing so well. And suddenly for like the first time, Scott Morrison doesn't seem to be able to respond to that quite as well as he has. And I think that those problems are going to carry forward for him into 2020. It's going to be really interesting to see how Scott Morrison acts when he does have to be addressing both sides of debate and coming up with an actual policy that is going to move Australia forward because we've been stuck kind of treading water and I don't think he can do that anymore. Interesting. Sarah? 
Look, I think I think what's quite interesting is that Morrison wants to portray this image of a stable government that is doing things, you know, in in the best interest of Australians. So when he's asked if there is a problem, like is there a problem? Do you need to spend more money to stimulate the economy? Do you need to improve the drought package? Do you need to do more to help with bushfires? He says, no, everything's under control. Like we are doing what we need to be doing. Everyone relax. Stable, certain government. No, nothing to see here. But the problem with that is it, it's almost not reactive enough yeah. by trying to reassure everyone that the government's doing the right thing and and it's not panicking. It's it's almost it's it's seen as flat footed. It's seen as arrogant. It's seen as you know, t- completely tone deaf. So we've seen that the, the press conference he gave on the bushfires was a press conference he should have given a week mm, ago. Yeah. And it, it sort of acknowledged that he had actually heard people's concerns about the government not doing enough. And, you know, we're seeing the same thing with climate change. It's 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 it in it's sort of what they thought was a strength is becoming a bit of a weakness. Mm, interesting, Paul. Uh, yeah, I think he's kind of reverting back to his true character and showing true colours because I think when he first got the job, there were occasional dog whistles, things like calling teachers that support children that are transitioning gender, gender whisperers, and then those sort of culture wars have come back out after the election with, you know, the the bathroom signs at the Department oh, of Prime God. Minister and Cabinet. Why, and, why haven't we discussed that story? Well, oh. I, I, so <laughs> I, I think that we are, like, seeing him come back to his his true colours and I, I think he, he sort of runs two sets of books in his head where he's... He, he knows he knows the ways that he is not like other people, and he know. But he he has a very good understanding of what quote unquote normal Australian values are, and he just in the election campaign only only talked about those things that he knows that he has in common with people, and just pushed all those more dog whistling culture war, more particular aspects of his own belief and character, like out of view, didn't talk about it at all. And but now I, f- I think they're creeping back in. But he's, not, he's sort of not a you know ideological spear carrier like Tony Abbott was. Like, I think he's mm. he's not in a policy sense. No, not, not in a policy mm. sense, policy sense. And he gets the politics of it mm. as well. I think in in a way that you know perhaps has seen him tame down some of those um, you know inclinations. Like when he was asked in the campaign about the abor- you know, publicly funded abortions, and he mm. just he didn't go anywhere near it. And it'll be very interesting, particularly with the religious uh, discrimination debate that obviously Paul's been covering very closely. It'll be very interesting to see how he handles some of those issues in the new year. Yeah. He, he can when he wants to, but with the luxury of it being two and a half years before the next election, he feels that he doesn't have to in, in little bursts, which is I think when you see the kind of Trump light elements. Yeah, well, I don't want to exaggerate the Trump point because it's, uh, well... But but it's it's there. There's the, it's sort of it's it's probably not quite right to say Trumpism. It's probably more precise to say that kind of populism, that sort of populism that a, that a number of conservative centre right well and and far right leaders are are experimenting with. He's trying to find his own cadence and meter with that, rather than copying someone. It's not that he's trying to find his own version of that. I think maybe we finish Morrison this way. Uh, the final essential poll of the year was uh, quite interesting to me. Uh, he's very popular um, amongst coalition voters. He's massively popular amongst coalition voters. Uh, but other voting cohorts, not so convinced. And his negatives have actually ticked up by six points over the last six months. Now, look, this guy is a formidable 
politician. He is one of the the best I've seen. Uh, I'm not saying that we're we're standing on some tipping point here because I think that would be foolish to predict. But I think we are at a transition point in the new year, which we've kind of unpacked here a little bit that'll be interesting. Anyway, we need to do labour and where Mm. we think labour are at in our sort of look forward mode. So labour, what Mm. do we reckon? Well, they've spent the last, you know, six months or however long it's been since the election just kind of taking stock of why they lost the election. And they were really, I think, at a a dangerous period for them as as a party because it felt like a generational loss, even though they only need to win eight seats at the next election. I mean, there were two seats difference, really. It's just that to them, it felt like everything that they had worked for for the last three terms of government had been all for naught. They had been wiped out. And I remember speaking to people who don't follow politics who thought the coalition had won by 20 seats. They had no idea the makeup of the parliament. It was just the feeling that they had picked up on. So I think Labor has gone through a pretty big healing time. I think the review, as as Sarah and and you, Murph, have covered off very, very well, has... um, done a lot to help that healing process because they now kind of have a bit of a plan moving forward. What's going to happen for them, though, is they have to decide who they are as a party under Anthony Albanese. Do they believe in climate change policies as much as they previously have? How do they balance coal communities in Queensland and, you know, Joel's end of the world with the fact that they want to do something on climate change? Who are they in 2020? Do they still represent the worker? Is that who they're going after? Are they going after more inner city potential green voters? And I don't think they've worked that out yet. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? I think they handled the review process really well and and they're in pretty good shape, all things considered. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the review was very honest and they released it all and they have had that, um, you know, they've had that process. Um, in kind of, it's kind of like a managed detonation, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't think they could do it any other way because otherwise the bad bits would leak anyway and they were kind to... Bill Shorten in the review. They had to still try and manage those internals. But the plan was to have the review, get it all out of their system, draw a line and then reset so they're in good shape for the for the new year. And I think they have more or less done that. Mm-hmm. Paul? Um, well, I, I think the problem at the election was that they were offering too much change and they've learnt the lesson now that they want to go into the next election offering you know, one big idea rather than lots and lots of policies. And I I think that that's going to naturally lead them to ditch the tax and spend approach of a long shopping list of tax concessions that they're going to crack down on and a long shopping list of things that they're going to spend it on. And I think there is still room for them to make the environment, you know, the, the one big point of difference with the coalition because things like that ANU election study showed that they actually won votes on that issue. And if they can find a way of, you know, credibly saying that they're going to reduce emissions more than the coalition without, you know, necessarily losing working class suburban, outer suburban and, you know, coal community seats, then there is potential for that to be like a very positive contrast with with the coalition. Yeah, well, they're trying to square that circle, aren't they? I mean, rather than necessarily making it an either or, they're in the headspace at the moment of trying somehow to square that circle. We've seen right-wingers like Tony Burke and Chris Bowen floating a Green New Deal, for example, 
you know, some sort of other means of a compact with working people that also involves, you know, ambition on climate change. So, but that is obviously like the really heavy work of this term and mm. and something that they will really only, I think, get into in the new year. Now, uh, Sally, I think time's against us. So, uh, you're just so warming up. I know. We're just like opening the shoulders and, and, and starting to bat. But anyway, I just, while everybody's listening, while this lovely Politics Live pod audience is listening, I want to thank my colleagues who are the best people in the world to work with. You can hear what quality analysis they deliver every day of the week by listening to this conversation. I am so proud of them and I am so lucky to lead them and work with them. Uh, I want to... <laughs> we are nothing without our dear leader. <laughs> exactly. And I want to wish all the listeners of the pod a very, very happy festive season. We are going to walk off into the good night, this little crew, and try and recharge. Ready? Well, we'll accept four. No, I was going to say, can he sing? Can he sing Merry oh. like a little Christmas ditty? I don't want a lot for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all we need. No, that's okay. pretty good. Actually, it's pretty yes. good. Anyway, yeah, we, we are going to have a break. This podcast is going to have a reasonably substantial break. I want to remind you guys to listen to Full Story, which is the new Guardian. Well, hardly new now. It's sort of like part of the landscape, right? But anyway, new-ish. Guardian Australia podcast full story. It is most marvellous and we contribute to it regularly. So, uh, yes, have a terrific festive season. Rest up for the new year. I suspect it's going to be quite an interesting year in politics next year. Mm. I think it might be a bit different to the one we've just had. I'm not quite sure how the story ends and we've all learned not to predict the ending. So mm. let's not do that. Thanks, as always, to Hannah Izzard, who's sitting in on this pod today, which is lovely to have her. Uh, thank you for sterling services to production to this pod all year, my dear. Thank you. That's lovely. We really do appreciate you and everything that you do. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer. Switch off, forget politics. We'll resume in the new year. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.